Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, we are joined by the award-winning composer Nicholas Bratel. Nicholas, you may know because he did the theme to Succession. He works with Barry Jenkin on Moonlight, If Beale Street Could Talk, Underground Railroad. He's just done the music for the new Star Wars show Andor, and he's written the score to the new musical Carmen. I was so excited to speak to him. He's been one of my favorite composers for a long time. If Beale Street Could Talk is top five best soundtrack scores ever. And it was a huge influence on the Deeper Into Movies podcast music. And we get into that. But it's a real privilege to talk to Nicholas Brittle. Here we go. How are you? Good. How are you? Really good. Such a fan. So excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. So what kind of teenager were you? What kind of music was having a big imprint on you? What type of movies? (laughs) That's a good question. That's a big question to start. But No, no, it's good. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was seriously considering being a classical concert pianist. So I uh, I was playing a lot of music in, in my teens um, and I would listen to a lot of things. I was listening to a lot of classical music and I was also listening to a lot of hip hop in the, this was the early mid nineties. <laughs> oh, the golden era. The gold, yeah, yeah the, the quote unquote golden. Yeah. So, so um, you know uh, yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of hip hop and a lot of classical music. So I would listen to Tribe Called Quest and I would listen to, Mozart. <laughs> so it's a good combination. Who's your favorite Wu-Tang member? That's a good question. I mean, as far as Wu-Tang, I mean, there's so many amazing members of Wu-Tang. There's no weak link in Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang's incredible and, yeah. and, and legendary. I mean, yeah. I would just shout out, obviously, Riza Jizza and Method Man would be my first yeah. jumping out. But and also, you know, um, I love uh, and I love Riza production. You know, I love. Of course, you know, it was it was sort of, you know, um, uh, groundbreaking in in so many ways. So yeah, ridiculous that he did every solo album and none of them sucked. There was no duds. It was just incredible. Brilliant minds, yeah. Yeah, I go for Jizza best solo album. Love liquid chords, right? Incredible, incredible, incredible. so incredible. cinematic. Yeah. That opening track is so sinister and so compelling. Amazing. But Ghostface for overall career. Oh, Amazing. There you go. Yeah. And how and about I, soundtracks? What drew you to the soundtrack world? Well, I would, to be honest, if we were really going back, I mean, I would start right at the beginning, which is for me, when I was five, I saw Chariots of Fire. And that was the first, um, 
that was the thing that actually made me want to be a pianist because um, we had this old upright in our apartment on West End Avenue here in New York. And I, it was like an old player piano that my grandma bought us like secondhand somewhere. And um, I saw Chariots of Fire and I went over to the piano and tried to figure out how to play it. And as a non-pianist five-year-old, you know, the opening note is just a repeated note. (laughs) So all of a sudden you feel like a pianist. And I remember asking my mom for piano lessons. So um, that was that was really the first film music that I was probably into. But, you know, I mean, there's there's film music is so vast. I mean, there's an, almost an infinity of things to say, everything from Bernard Herrmann and John Williams and, you know, Rota to Morricone and Danny Elfman. And, you know, growing up, I mean, there's there, you know, it was I would sort of listen to anything and everything that that moved me. And uh, and I also love, you know, composers like speaking of Preisner, I think is incredible. When I was a teenager, I remember I saw the Kieślowski films um, for the first time, the Color Trilogy and Double Life of Veronique and the Decalogue. And those I thought were just just some of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Yeah, they're just being re-released over here on the 4K restorations. So Amazing. There you go. I caught, I, I caught Blue last week. Those were things that I think what was wonderful about the Kieślowski films for me was that those were films that I think um, I saw those, I saw some of those for the first time probably when I was like 13 or so, mm-hmm. where I had, we had the IFC channel uh, growing yeah. up. It shows you the importance of access to these types of things. You know, I would never have known about these movies but but I was watching IFC and um, I remember, I think it was Double Life of Veronique that I saw um, and just remember watching and thinking to myself, I didn't know you could do that. You know, that feeling yeah. of like, I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know a movie like that even could exist. And it just opened my eyes to so many other types of things where, you know, um, it just, uh, it really moved me in a very, very profound way. And uh, And then obviously I became obsessed with uh, movies from all over the world and and the history of film and you start you know the process never ends really yeah i forgot about that we we have we had channel four which, which always had a sunday movie late night indie movie amazing and it was always great to, even when i like we'd see like uh stranger than paradise or sure. even, yeah. even when i saw spanking the monkey which is such a strange gross amazing movie but i was like this can be a movie <laughs> Something this perverse and strange. Those are the things. Those are the things that happen because I think so much of independent cinema is about breaking the boundaries of of your of your preconceived notions of what the form is or what the or what what a genre is or what a or what film is, you know. And um and and uh and actually I would say that's actually an interesting segue to Carmen because I feel like in some ways what I was doing with Benjamin, what Benjamin wanted to do was very much that kind of thing of just saying to ourselves like. If you could, you know, if you could just make a film that is experimental in certain ways, following a certain kind of concept, you know, what would it be? And then having a sense of like being willing to try things that you've never tried before. And I think, you know, about those movies, you're, you know, we were just talking about that. Yeah. There was something to all of that, you know. So how was it when you were adapting Common that? You only use certain elements of original. So how 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 did you go about choosing what to keep and what to take away and what to reinvent? 
Well, it was interesting because musically, when Benjamin first came to me with the idea of Carmen to do it, his first instinct was really that it was going to be a total reimagining. And it was really yeah. just to use Carmen as a starting point for a kind of film journey that we would go on together. And my first, uh, I remember the first thing I said to him was that, you know, there have been so many amazing uh, Carmen adaptations over the years, but I said that I did not want to rearrange Bizet. Like Bizet is incredible. Yeah. I didn't want to do that at all. And so I said to him, you know, I think it has to be a completely original musical score and uh, and original songs. And so that was really, and he agreed right away. He said, you know, he wanted to reimagine the, 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 the concept as well. And so right from the start, we knew it was going to be completely original and it wasn't going to have any of the music of the opera. And then it was really only in the very, very last stages of post-production that I had this crazy idea of what if I were to incorporate a choir into the score and that it almost acted like an like an ancient Greek chorus that was commenting on the lives of the characters in the film in a sort of ghostly way, um, almost like a character in the film itself. And if I were to do that, you know, uh, what would that choir be saying? That's the big question. You know, you have a choir that's saying things. What do they say? And then that was when I said to Benjamin, well, what if we were to take the lyrics from the original opera in French right. and adapt them and, and arrange them into my original music? And we tried it and it just felt so right. It felt like there was all of a sudden a ghostly resonance with the original opera while completely reimagining it. And that was kind of the final discovery, I think, that we had. So it was it wasn't something you know, in, in the best possible way. It wasn't something we knew going into it. And and I feel that it, with film in general, that's the wonderful thing about working on films is that films kind of teach you what they need as you're working on them. And if you're open to it, you're kind of learning what the film is about as you're making it in a sense, you know, it. You, and, and, and I think so much of the process is about staying open to discovering things. And I've had that experience on, I would say, every project I've worked on, there's a moment, usually it's funny, usually it's about 60 to 70% of the way through working on something. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know enough about it. There's some sort of education that you've had almost in the process that about 60 to 70% of the way through the project, all of a sudden you have a realization about what it is that you're really doing. And then you say to yourself, oh my God, that's what this is. And then it makes you go back and rethink everything you've done a little bit. So I've had that happen on almost every project and that certainly happened on Carmen. And was it daunting or was it, is this exciting when you completely throw away the rule book of Carmen and say, we're going to do our own thing? Both. I would say it's definitely both. It was definitely daunting and definitely exciting. The thing that made it less daunting was just that Benjamin was so excited by these ideas and he was so encouraging and confident that um that i felt uh creatively supported in that way that mm -hmm. i was like oh, we're gonna do this let's let's do it but i definitely said to him at one point i was like am i totally crazy here <laughs> or you know you can tell me if i'm being crazy and he said no, no 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 i i i want this this sounds perfect and it was just one of those things where um in those scenes where we first tried out it's actually the the scene i first tried out the idea of the choir was in the motel when Carmen and Aiden first mm -hmm. together um, in that way. And uh, it was fascinating what, what the choir did to the scene. It just, 
it 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 added this whole other dimension. Um, and I think it also helped, you know, me. I think when I'm watching a film, when I'm working on a film, I'm also imagining myself as an audience. And what it did to me was it also helped me feel like I was in a dream state. Like I mm -hmm. wasn't, I wasn't, you know, the film, it's, this film isn't reality in a lot of senses. You know, I think it, in a lot of ways you're watching and it's like, is this all a dream? It's certainly a dreamscape in a lot of senses. And I think the, the fact that there is this constant, you know, ancient choir kind of singing to you in French, to me, helped me feel that this was a, an altered dimension. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MUBI. MUBI is a creative streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. And did you know MUBI has a magazine? MUBI just sent me the new issue of Notebook. It's called Notebook. And firstly, I got to say, the paper smells so good. Do you guys know what I'm talking about when you get like a new book? Or a magazine that has that nice recycled paper and it just smells really good. Like all things Mubi does, it's super nicely designed. It's got a great aesthetic. And the contents are great too. There was a feature on Park Chan-wook, which I really liked. And a really great feature on Michelangelo Antonioni. And here's the deal. The magazine comes out twice a year. So you can subscribe now to receive the next two issues of Notebook for £30 at mubi.com forward slash magazine. And all the magazine subscribers get a free gift. I love free stuff. So go check it out for yourself. Go to mubi.com forward slash magazine and keep printed matter and especially film magazines alive. Go do it. been one of the composer on the podcast because I've always been curious of the relationship between the director mm -hmm. and the composer and I had a really funny experience when I was starting my podcast I said I need killer music for my podcast very cool I think it's really lacking in <laughs> podcast to get a really so I got this really good indie classical composer great and we had free shots at it okay and we could not nail it oh no and in, in the end we said I can't afford any more of your time and we're not nailing it. Huh. And then it was, and it got me so curious. Well, happy ending. Then I went to my friend, Joshua Eustace, who's plays as Telephone Tel Aviv. Okay. And I said to him, look, dude, can you give me a scrap of something from your hard drive that you may have lying about? And he said, no, let me compose something for you. It's in lockdown. Uh -huh. All the composers need money. What are you thinking? Yeah. And I was like, okay, cinema, 
you're going on a date or you're maybe doing something solo. It's a weekday, it's raining. I'm thinking like something from Annie Hall. Give me some like Michael Nyman or John Barry. Huh. It's got to be melancholic. I want horns. And he was like, oh, like if Beale Street could talk. And I was like, that's my favorite soundtrack from like 10 years. And I was like, give me that. And he was like, all right, done. That's my favorite too. So thanks, well, I'm buddy. honored. We, I'm we honored. Nailed, we, we nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> but it got me so curious. He we totally got each other's references mm. instantly. But I was wondering, talking about music from, from a non-musician standpoint, mm-hmm. when it's so ethereal. And I was yes. wondering how how are your discussions with directors and getting the sound to the vision and vice versa and syncing up? What kind of well, discussions do you have? You're speaking to the essence of the whole process in a way. I mean, I right. think. That that what you just described is literally the art form. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, that actually that actually is the art. The art form is an art form of of collaboration and communication. You know, it's not it's not the type of thing where I watch a movie and I write music and I send it to a director. That is absolutely not how this works right. at all. You know, the way that it works is. I won't work on a project unless I can be in the room with the director and we are looking at things together and listening to things together. And I'm actually sitting here saying, here's what I'm feeling, you know, talk to me about what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And then it's a constant kind of back and forth where, you know, it's a, it's a discussion. It's about um, trying to get a sense of real feelings that, yeah. that you're feeling and that hopefully that you're imagining and and interpreting the feelings that someone else is looking for. And then it's finding sounds that you feel both reflect those feelings, but that also reflect the picture and the story and how that, so it's this interesting, you're, you know, I feel as a composer, sometimes I'm almost like a prism through which, you know, the picture and the director kind of go through. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah way you know what i mean and yeah totally and even the geometry of how it looks in the room you know i'm sitting between the picture and the director in a way you know the director usually sits on this couch yeah and i'm kind of like listening and interpreting and then trying to see if the picture can can somehow feel those things and so it is like you said it's very you know it's it's very intangible abstract i've used words like alchemy mystical you know it's very much that kind of a thing um, but I think that's a beautiful thing because it's it's different every time. It's different with different people, different with different picture, with different stories. So every one of these projects is its own um, journey. And that's why I was saying things like, you know, the picture tells you you learn from the movie. Um, mm-hmm. but to be even more specific, you learn from the movie with the director. You know, that's, yes. the, that's the best part of it. So So what you're talking about, you know, I think, you know, lockdown was a difficult time more more especially i think for this type of collaboration because mm-hmm. you had to be in the room and how do you be in the room together and interestingly um during lockdown i had two projects that i was working on i was working on the underground railroad series with barry jenkins mm-hmm. and i was actually working on the cruella film uh, uh and and i remember going to los angeles and moving to los angeles for six months and being in a quarantine pod there so that i could be in the same room as the director yeah. That was, that's the only way to do it. I actually, to be totally honest, I don't know how to do this if I'm not in the same room. It's, sure. it's so essential if that's a, if that's an answer to the question. Yeah. What do you do in those moments where maybe you guys aren't syncing up or you're delivering something you think is killer and they're like, eh. It's okay. 
It's totally fine. And actually, it's a normal, natural part of the process. The way that we look at it, though, actually, is I think every element of this is a learning process. So you have to look at even the things that don't work are helping you. That's the way I view it. So for example, if I write something, it's never a judgment about the music. You know, there's so many times I'll write a piece of music and let's say Barry will say, I love that. It's not right for this scene, but I love that mm-hmm. piece, you know? So there's never judgment. There's no ego. There's no sense of, oh, that's wrong. You know, it might not be wrong. It might not be right for a scene, but there's nothing wrong fundamentally about a piece of music. It just is it just is, you know? So for example, it's a question of, okay, if this isn't working, what is that telling us about what the scene needs, for example? Mm -hmm. So you start, you start asking questions like, well, what, if this is a feeling that doesn't work, well, what, what is a feeling that this might need? And maybe, maybe it needs something like this. And then you try something else and you say, are we, what is that? Oh, I like that one thing, but what if there was a what if there was something totally different? What if it had this? And it's this experimental process where it's very, it's very stream of consciousness, it's very free form, it's not rigid, it's very fluid, you know. And I think a lot of that is me doing research beforehand, you know. So when a director comes, I don't, you know, I've already spent time watching, let's say, the rough cut. I've already spent time talking, mm-hmm. I've read the script, I've done lots of things. So I may have a whole set of ideas. As, but they're starting points, you know, they're starting right. points. Yeah. And actually brought up that Beale Street could talk. I mean, on Beale Street, actually, um, there was an early idea uh, when Barry first came to me with the, I, the idea of doing that film. I had read the book. I read the script. Mm-hmm. He said to me that he was hearing the sound in his mind's ear. You know, he was hearing the sound of brass and horns. And so I went off and I did all these experiments with flugelhorns and piccolo trumpets and cornet and French horn. And I wrote a piece of music and I remember playing it for Barry and he said he absolutely loved it. Like he said, it was it was just, just something so special to him. And then we put it up against the picture and he was like, it doesn't work. <laughs> and, and But here's the thing, the theme of that piece is the main theme of the movie. And what we discovered, I said to him, well, what doesn't work? There was something about the brass that was too direct. It was too right at you, you know? And so I took the chords that I had written and I had them recorded on cellos. And then Barry immediately responded to that. And then I said, well, Is that the Harlem piece or is that a game? So so, so, uh, Eden Harlem is the chord initially written on cellos. And then if you listen, the melody is the melody that was on brass and then when I brought the brass back in, that's agape, and you hear the brass right. chords. And the piece that that he loved, but that isn't in the movie, is a bonus track on the album called Harlem Aria. That's the first yeah. piece I played for Barry. That is not in the movie, but that is basically the main theme of the movie. So how did you get those kind of Bernard Harmon taxi driver horns? That kind of well, actually, I worked on a lot of different horn textures. You know. Right. Um, extensively with an amazing uh, brass musician who plays every brass instrument except trombone, uh, an incredible musician named CJ Camarieri. And uh, we did experiments together where he came over and I'd written all these things and I would I would play it, we'd play it on piccolo trumpet and then we'd play it on muted cornet and then we'd play it on, you know, we and I, and I would create all these textures and then I would experiment with those sounds. And so it was really, for me, it was a, the, the sort of, um, you know, mid-century brass noir kind of sound is something that I find very, very beautiful. And one mm-hmm. of the interesting things I tried to do with that was for a lot of the pieces, I would say to myself, what if I was writing classical chamber music 
but I was using 20th century jazz harmonies. And that's actually how I wrote. That was my sort of mental Amazing. thought. So for example, if you listen to the piece Encomium on the album, that's um, a cello ensemble. It's it's all ch it's eight cellos and one double bass. And I wrote it as if I was writing sort of a classical nonet, but all the harmonies were jazz harmonies. And I was thinking, how do you approach something like Star Wars, which has so much iconic music already attached to it? How do you work your way into that headspace and you're doing your own thing. You've got these killer simps going on. It's, it's very totally, different. Yeah, than, uh... Very different. That was interesting. I mean, Star Wars, I mean, in, in so many ways, the, the, the only way that I, th I felt comfortable or able to do that was because from the first time they approached me, uh, Tony Gilroy, who I was already a huge fan of, and, and obviously, you know, amazing Kathy Kennedy. It was, it was only because the first thing they said to me was that they were interested in me working on the project, but that they wanted to create a completely unique soundscape to this part of the story, you know, in the, mm. in the part of the Star Wars world. And I think because they gave me the ability to respond to the story itself and respond to Tony's instincts, I was able to, I had the freedom to create something anew. I think if I was um, trying to write, you know, music like John Williams, my recommendation would be, well, you know, John Williams is still alive and yeah, incredible yeah. that he is. So, so I think, you know, I felt very comfortable in a way doing it because I was supported to, to try something that was different um, and really was really about responding to that story in the sense of that, you know, early, those scenes on Morlana, which are sort of a gritty uh, retro noir cityscape, for example, mm -hmm. um, to me, you know, I'm a child of the 1980s and I was born in 1980. And if I am, you know, uh, Andor is the, is the before of Rogue One, which is the before of right. episode four. And so for me, I was imagining, well, what sounds to me feel like earlier than history, you know, like, like the, like the past. Yeah. And to me, there's something older or, 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 or beautifully nostalgic about those analog synthesizers to me yeah it was so exciting hearing you do simps i love synth and so that was so that was a starting point and obviously over the course of the 12 episodes the sound is constantly changing yeah where we go but that was an early starting point and to be frank the the actual literal starting point for me when i was approached on the show uh was the funeral in episode 12 the literal final culmination of the series was the first thing i wrote for the series and that was because it had to be choreographed and created and shot. And so Tony said, this is what we have to figure out first above all. And so I, my first assignment was really imagining this history of Ferex and what was their communal uh, music of these life moments, this, this, this mm -hmm. cycle of life. And this would be a piece that would be performed at this moment, at the moment of the funeral of, 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 of the, of a townsperson and, and we wanted it to feel like it was sort of this ancient sound of their culture that meant so much. Mm -hmm. and, and I was sort of in that headspace of imagining that. And when I played it for Tony, he really, really loved it almost right away. And that then I said to myself, okay, maybe there's something in this that then can emerge from it that can become perhaps a thematic element. And interestingly, the motif that you hear in the funeral is the Marva kind yeah. of... You know, uh, motif and then from there 
it become it, it relates with Cassian, and then it's sort of so it was it was interesting for me that the fine that we almost started at the very end and then went to the beginning. And I got time for one more question, so I'll ask you. I know you give masterclasses, you speak at universities. What advice do you find yourself giving young artists? It's a great question. You know, one thing I do tell people a lot, certainly people who want to do do this, um, yeah. is that it's so important to to find your your creative kindred spirits and your and your creative collaborators, your creative partners, and to and to realize actually that they're all around you. And frankly, if you're in school, for example, the people that you may end up working with for the next 20 years are very likely your friends that you're making a project with. I so much of my ability to do this and the and the and I feel so lucky to be able to do this, but so much of it came from, you know, in college, a group of friends. Uh, I had a very dear friend named Nick Lavelle who who tragically passed away a few years ago, but I remember him coming up to me one day. He was making a feature film in college for ten thousand dollars. He was putting it all together himself. And he came up to me and he said, would you like to score my movie? And he was already a very good friend, but we went on this journey together of, we didn't know what we were doing, but we would try to, I would try to score scenes, mm -hmm. you know, Korg Triton that I would sequence things. And, and, and I think the realization and looking back that it's about, it's about these friendships. I think this is a people, this is a people business. This is a, a people enterprise, you know, it's about mm -hmm. working with people, um, you know, filmmaking is a team sport. And so, you know, finding, finding people that you enjoy collaborating with, um, I think is really the most important thing of all. Amazing. Was that your teen hip hop instrumental group? The Witness Protection Program. That's that such I a hard name. That's a sick <laughs> name, dude. That's WPP. Yeah, the WPP. Yes, so that sick. Our, that was our band. Yeah. So I was, so I was in the band in college and I was scoring my friend's films. So that was, that was kind of how it all started coming together when I was, that was the period when I really started writing every day. Fantastic. That's such a good hip hop name. That's so good. That's kind of the hardest part of sounding, <laughs> very sounding nice. cool. Yeah. We're proud of our names. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been such a pleasure talking to you, buddy. I'm such a fan. Uh, well, thank Keep you up so the amazing much. work. Thank you for the great questions. Really, really fun talking. Oh, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Best of luck with the movie. Thank you. Cool. Take care. All right. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Checking out. Me and Nicholas Brattel. What a sweet guy. So freaking smart. So interesting. And I'll say it one more time. If you haven't heard If Beale Street Could Talk soundtrack, check it out. It's just spectacular. That's the final time I'll say it. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks to my composer, Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv. Thanks to Mubi. And we'll speak soon.